It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Dana Perino, and this is Perino on Politics. Last week, Republican candidates faced off in Alabama at the fourth Republican primary debate of the cycle. The stage was the smallest one yet, and the road ahead for candidates will only become more challenging. As the candidates travel across the country, they're trying to make connections with early state voters. They remain in the shadow of the current frontrunner, former President Trump, who has adopted somewhat of a courtroom campaign strategy And it's working. Joining me today to analyze these very strategies is my friend, Matt Whitlock. Matt currently serves as the senior vice president of CRC Advisors. Before that, and when we first met, Matt worked as a senior advisor to the National Republican Senatorial Committee. And he also worked alongside Utah Senator Orrin Hatch. And that is an amazing connection. For those of you who used to follow the Orrin Hatch Twitter account, you can thank Matt Whitlock, as I do. Matt, welcome to Perino on Politics. Thank you. It's a very big honor to be with you. I'm excited because so for this podcast, what I try to do is let people listen in on conversations I'd be having with my friends anyway. So you can be as candid as possible with all the things that. that are going on. We have three segments. The first one, we're going to focus on the Republican primary and then President Biden, which I think in a way is almost the more interesting story with the possibility of a surprise. So, but let's start with the Republicans. The Iowa poll came out today. We're 35 days away from the voting. Uh, Today is December 11th. So if you're listening to this later on, uh, December 11th, 35 days to the voting in Iowa. And the poll comes out today. It's considered a very good poll, the Iowa and Seltzer's poll. Trump is doing very well, broke 51%. Yeah, I think... For one thing, if you're an incumbent, you want to be above 50% a long time ago. But for President Trump, this was a big milestone to break that point. I think that also the fact that while every other candidate is really working hard in Iowa, President Trump is himself without spending as much time in the state, without spending time on the debate stage, is also increasing his lead. His lead is is a very big factor did to they, watch. Did they spend a, how much Compared to DeSantis, how much money has Trump spent in the state or the PAC has spent in the state? How does that, how is that compared? Much less. DeSantis has spent every dime in the state. But the other thing that I think for DeSantis is he's taken the most incoming. He's had more money spent against him in Iowa and than by anyone Trump, else has right? spent. And by Trump. Yeah. And now obviously quite a bit by Nikki Haley too. So I think one thing that's promising for DeSantis is he still has very high favorability ratings among Iowa caucus going Republicans, despite having close to $30 million spent against him there. And he so went a positive up, thing. DeSantis went up in the Iowa poll just a little bit. Do you think just that- enough to, I think, feel like he has stepped on the Nikki Haley momentum there. She still has 16% there, which is very strong. But the fact that he's increased while she stayed the same for narratives is somewhat helpful, even though President President Trump mm-hmm. gaining, I believe it was nine, is mm-hmm. probably the narrative that most people are taking away from it. And I think, you know, you always make the point of saying there's still 
time before voting and the Iowa caucuses are a different kind of election where you have to sit in a cold room for two hours and really fight for your candidate. So people will still be asking questions and really taking time to make this decision up until that day. But as far as narratives and momentum go right now, it's still very much President Trump's to lose. I, I can't remember if it was the Iowa poll or the Wall Street Journal poll said that seven, oh, is Iowa. 73% of Iowans believe that Trump can beat Biden. They believe that Trump can beat Biden. And but to complement that with the Wall Street Journal poll, Trump has a massive advantage on mental ability to do the job, physical ability to do the job. And I think that's the reason more than anything why we've seen the challengers to President Trump really struggle. It's less about their own campaigns, even though I think plenty of people would say there are things that they could have probably done slightly differently. More the fact that the lane for a Trump alternative has dissolved as President Biden has been as bad as he is, because you'll remember a lot of the demand for a Trump alternative came from this idea that Trump couldn't beat Biden. He lost to President Biden running from his basement in 2020. But I think nobody really estimated just how bad Joe Biden would be from the fall of Afghanistan through two more years of really tone deaf policies and telling people the economy's great when they know it's not inflation's down when they know it's not all these things that really have kind of been a middle finger that gets mm-hmm. you to the point where Joe Biden is flirting with a you know approval rating in the 30s that has strengthened Trump more than anything else out there the fact mm-hmm. that head to head president Trump looks pretty good compared mm-hmm. to Joe Biden before we talk more about Biden, I do want to ask you about this, because you would imagine that if you're going with your head versus your gut or your heart, you would look at what some of these polls showing Nikki Haley against Biden is like she almost seems like a sure winner. Right. Absolutely. If you look at those polls. But a lot of Republicans don't necessarily go on electability. Exactly. And I think it goes to that same thing we've been talking about. Electability was a higher priority when it seemed like Joe Biden could beat Donald Trump or whoever else that might be. That decreased as a priority as Joe Biden has imploded, both from a policy standpoint and mental acuity. So we can look at polls saying, you know, Nikki Haley beating Joe Biden by 17 in that Wall Street Journal poll. That should be flashing red lights. And Nikki's team has really used that to say, give us a chance Mm -hmm. to have this sort of Reagan ask majority that can win a huge number of states. But Republican voters at this point don't seem to have seen that as as high a priority, especially because right now President Trump is the Republican they know best. So if they feel like any of these guys can beat Joe Biden, it seems right now like they're leaning towards the one that they know the best, Mm -hmm. which is President Trump, even though, I mean, Nikki's painted a very compelling picture on that electability front. And then could you just spend a moment thinking about the turn from Iowa to the following week, mm-hmm. the week of January 22nd, I believe that votes January 23rd. That's a Tuesday vote. Um, that turn is different, right? So how's it looking there for President Trump, DeSantis, Nikki Haley, Chris Christie and Vivek Ramaswamy still in the race, too? Absolutely. That one is uh, the thing about the Republican primary calendar that I think is actually a benefit is the fact that you go from a conservative state that requires a lot of sort of sweat equity, you know, um, campaigning to a more moderate state like New Hampshire, which also requires that same retail politicking, but in kind of a different way. Nikki has spent a lot more time there and she's done a very, very good job of building up strong support there um, and speaking a language that I think a lot of them really understand and appeals to them. And so she is 
the clear number two there, I think it's a question of whether or not she can get close enough to President Trump. I think you look at the way that Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley are basically looking at this map. You see a lot of similarities to 2016, different candidates. For example, Marco Rubio in 2016 didn't necessarily have the approach of, I want to win every primary. He had a, if I finish strongly enough in Iowa, I can leverage that in New Hampshire and then eventually perform better going into South Carolina, so on and so on. That didn't exactly pan out. But what I think Nikki's seeing here is if she can get close enough in Iowa and have a strong second in New Hampshire, she has a a path forward to make herself the clear alternative to President Trump. But does DeSantis feel the same way? I think DeSantis probably feels very similar. Right. And I think that he feels when he looks at Iowa polls and sort of more general polls of conservative voters, he is a more clear second choice Mm. to a lot of Trump voters. Now, the challenge with that second choice dynamic is it's a second choice. And we don't have any indication that President Trump is leaving the field anytime soon. Should that happen? Obviously, there will be major shakeups here. But in Iowa, from this Des Moines Register poll, which, as you mentioned, is the gold standard of Iowa polling, Ron DeSantis has a very large chunk of those second choice votes. And when you look at the full field of who people are considering, who they're committed to, who they're you know, kind of flirting with and who they would vote for. You know, he has the biggest group behind him after President Trump. So he has an argument, but Nikki also has that moderate lane. And today, Politico did a really interesting deep dive of the Nikki base. And they found about 7% of the electorate that would vote for Nikki against Biden, but would not vote for President Trump against Joe Biden. And 7% is a big amount in this current electorate. I think the Trump team would respond to that by saying, mm-hmm. when you cater to that 7%, you likely lose some of the more rigid so, conservatives, um, sort of the, the back right. end of the pie there. But I think that, you know, when you're, when you're making up pieces here, that's sort of the, the math yeah. that we're going off of. And part of the reason that it seems difficult to coalesce is because everyone is seeing a unique path for themselves. Um, we'll, we'll turn to Biden now, but I will just mention for everybody listening, the other thing in that poll that I thought was interesting for President Trump doing the best with evangelical voters, that might not be a surprise, but first time caucus goers in Iowa as well. So that's interesting. Absolutely. They're bringing in new voters and that that's certainly key to a re-election bid or perhaps for a going for round two type of bid. I have been incredibly fascinated by those numbers because Iowa has always been billed as the state you really had to work for, which is why DeSantis has done his 99 county tour. Nikki spent more and more time there. Everyone is trying to show they're working for those voters. And President Trump hasn't felt the need to do that. And yet he's got the support he has. He has this first time group, this first time group who likely didn't even caucus for him in 2020 or in 2016. So I think that's very interesting to watch. I am not a, you know, poll truther. I think a lot of people are, but I also think Iowa is one state where it's very, very difficult to get right. If you look at 2016, President Trump was consistently pulling ahead of Senator Cruz and Senator Cruz ended up pulling that one out. And I think it comes Mm -hmm. down to the fact that the caucus is a day of event and you will see a lot of late breakers and late dynamics. And I think one of the things those people are going to be going to the caucus asking is who has that fitness? Is there any concern 
that President Trump didn't participate in debates, so we don't know. One really big headline over the weekend was Megyn Kelly raised the question of, has President Trump lost a few steps? And maybe he hasn't. I know his team feels like he's just as sharp as he ever was. But the normal voters in Iowa and New Hampshire don't necessarily know because all they're able to gauge off of is Mm -hmm. fairly friendly media interviews and what they see Mm -hmm. on, you know, Truth Social and elsewhere. Not these debates that really President Trump built his brand off of as the fighter, the guy who could go in and tear anybody apart. I think we all remember his debates with Hillary when, you know, she said, uh, if I was in charge of the FBI, blah, blah, blah. And President Trump said, you'd be in jail. You know, like those those moments. He's not creating those this time. And so Mm -hmm. those questions might be some of the late deciding factors. So let's do talk about Biden. So the polls for him today on this Monday, December 11th, were really bad. Uh, You have historic disapproval numbers. You have people saying that 53 percent of people saying that the Biden's Biden administration's policies have actually hurt them. That's a historic high for that question. And about six months ago, I think most people that I would have called for this podcast would say they could definitely see where Trump could win, but that maybe there was a possibility that there would be something else, right? They were open to the idea that the Republican nominee was up in the air, but that Biden was surely going to be the the, Repu- the Democrats nominee. But now that's almost flipped where you have people saying, it looks to me like Trump is going to get this um, nomination for the Republicans, but the Biden candidacy seems to be the one that's question, that's being questioned and not by Republicans, no. by Democrats and yep. liberals and some not even anonymously, yeah. <laughs> like openly calling for Joe Biden to consider leaving the race. Uh, what do you think about all that? Everyone from David Axelrod, who I personally don't believe calls on Joe Biden to step aside without talking to one of his close friends, Barack Obama, but also everyone in the entertainment industry, Charlemagne the God, a lot of these voices who were big parts of the Democrat primary machine coming up to this point, who have said it's time to step aside. And these polls are flashing red lights. The thing that stuck out to me in that Wall Street Journal poll, and you just cited the 53% say Biden's policies have made them worse off. One of Biden's big value propositions in running was the idea that he alone could protect democracy. Well, Wall Street Journal asked who would be better at protecting democracy between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, and Biden only won by 1%. So I think that what we're seeing right now is it's a sort of throw the kitchen table at him disapproval. There isn't anything Joe Biden can do right now that will really soften that. And I think so much of it has to do with Joe Biden spending the last few years years listening to all the wrong people. His policies have so widely appealed to just that narrow segment of the far left, everything in energy, the electric vehicle mandates, all the way through, you know, eviction moratoriums, policies that were very foolish. And had he listened to even moderate Democrats around him, he wouldn't have made those mistakes. But now even look at, you know, Israel and and Hamas, President Biden is tempering his support for Israel because he's got this very narrow segment. And we've seen plenty of polls that show overwhelming majorities of Americans stand with Israel on this. Who's he listening to? Mm -hmm. The people that he's listening to have gotten him into this historic rut, this historic disapproval that's putting him in a position where, you know, a a paper bag could probably run against him and win. It's baffling. Can you imagine what the current chief of staff at the White House, Jeff Zients, thinks about the previous chief of staff, Ron Klain, 
and the mess that he is now in. Because I remember last year getting ready for the State of the Union, one of the things that you and I talked about, and I took the line and ran with it. So yes, I'm giving credit to Whitlock here. But if I, if you hear me say it on the shows, I really internalized it. And that's that Biden's accomplishments are also his biggest vulnerabilities. Yep. When you look at a poll that says 53% say Biden's policies have hurt him, that's what that means. Mm-hmm. Biden has taken... Um, his major spending bills, particularly the Inflation Reduction Act and the American Rescue Plan that spent trillions and he has billed them as helping people. The problem is they haven't felt that help. They haven't felt that support, but they have seen inflation go up because of that spending. And so they can see that Biden has spent their money on a lot of boondoggles that haven't done anything for them. And so that I think is where you see what they see as accomplishments, which is just running up the credit card. Normal mm-hmm. people see as you ran up the credit card in my name, and all I'm getting for it is more expensive gas and grocery bills. Last and so that's last, what we're seeing here. Um, last topic on this part before we take a break is uh, we on, on at Fox have reporters covering the border every day. Mm-hmm. And it is kind of shocking to me, having worked as a press secretary and also as a journalist, to just think that there's this major catastrophic, consequential story, and other reporters are just not there. They're not being assigned to go down there to work on this story. And I think people can see with their own eyes what is happening every day. They had 12,000 single working male migrants come through Arizona, one border area, one border area in a day. Yeah. 12,000. And people are seeing this and they're thinking to that question, who would protect democracy more? Mm-hmm. It's not that Americans aren't for immigration. You can, we would want more immigration, but there's no process, and yep. that they won't even figure out a way to deal with it. They're being given an opportunity. The House Republicans, and now even Senate Republicans, are saying, "Mr. Biden, we will give you the Ukraine and Israeli aid that you are asking for if you will at least help us do something on the border." And still, the White House is saying, "Not today." This is how you get an approval rating in the 30s is you won't take the win that's given to you because your ideological sort of moorings are so bent. And I think that's the mistake here is this could be a win for them. Securing the border would be a tiny cost compared to everything else that they've spent these last few years, but they don't want to do it. And they don't want to do it because they're thinking of AOC and the squad members and their photo ops down at the border pretending to cry at the fence line. That's not who they should be worried about here. They should be worried about the people who now see their failure to protect the border as an actual threat to democracy like you're talking about. These are easy wins wins that they are leaving on the table. And I think we all just look at it and say, what are you guys what doing? Are you doing? Because they act like it's not a problem. It's great. It's crazy. It's crazy. So is this. We are out of time for segment one. We'll be right back. Precise, personal, powerful. It's America's weather team in the palm of your hands. Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back with Perino on politics. Matt, I want to discuss something that you look at a lot, which is Senate races. And the Republicans have an advantage this year. I'll let you explain that. But how do you think the presidential campaign will impact the Senate map? Both parties want to be in control of the Senate because, as you know better than anybody, uh, having worked on the Senate side, whoever controls that majority, it's the key. It's the key to the kingdom. Absolutely. I mean, not nothing... 
the, the last few years have shown us just how important Senate control is. When you look at absolute lunatics throughout the executive branch that should never have been confirmed, but are able to be confirmed when one party has the majority. Um, and also judges. You look at some of the, the more kind of crackpot judges you see out there who Democrats will confirm with a 50-51 seat majority. So that's why this is so important. Um, and I think Republicans do feel like they have a very good map this year. But also to their credit, Steve Daines and the National Republican Senatorial Committee have done a very good job of working closely with candidates to pick strong primary candidates who can actually win in a lot of these states. Look at, you know, West Virginia, Pennsylvania with Dave McCormick, who a lot of people agree is one of the strongest candidates of this cycle. Montana, Steve Daines has gotten behind a gentleman named Tim Sheehy, who has an incredibly compelling story. These are candidates that they believe can win um, even in toughly contested races, because these are are red states that have had Democrat representation that I think a lot of people see, even with a President Trump on the ballot who might have some vulnerabilities, I think some of these states, President Trump actually helps Republicans because, for example, in West Virginia, Jim Justice is a great recruit. Joe Manchin has held on to that seat for all these years, kind of pretending to be a moderate. Trump has turned West Virginia into about a plus 40 Republican state. And so I think there are a lot of tough races there, but I think there are some very gettable races that Steve Daines and the NRSC feel like are winnable. And again, these are so important because whatever happens in the presidential, if you have the Senate, you control judges, which we saw was just how important that was between 2016 and 2020 when President Trump was able to nominate and have confirmed a giant portion of the federal bench, including three seats on the U.S. Supreme Court, mm -hmm. which have been so important to protecting the rule of law in the face of so many things that President Biden has done that he admitted were completely illegal. Things on the border, things like the eviction moratorium, vaccine uh, mandates, things that were clear overreaches of his federal power that these judges, many of whom were appointed in the previous administration and confirmed by a Republican Senate, were able to put a stop to in defense of the rule of law. Can and I so ask I think you about Pennsylvania? So yeah. in Pennsylvania, that's always been like, as I understand it, that's the state that, or the Commonwealth, but the, the state that Republicans, they're like, we're going to get it this time. It's like, mm -hmm. oh, actually not this time. And it's just, just always out of reach. And so in 2020, Dave McCormick, who's the Republican, who will be the Republican candidate in Pennsylvania for the Senate, he ran, he ran against Dr. Oz, that Trump chose Dr. Oz and, and mm -hmm. Trump was vicious towards Dave McCormick. Mm -hmm. Now, Dave McCormick is going to be running unopposed in the Republican primary. Do you think President Trump backs off, stays silent and lets Dave McCormick run the kind of race he needs to run in Pennsylvania? I think he does this time. I think that we learned from the last race, particularly getting a John Fetterman in place of Dr. Oz because of our, in part, our own infighting. I think people learn from that. And I think President Trump will either kind of steer clear of it or probably find ways to help Dave McCormick because Dave would be an incredibly valuable asset to him in the Senate. And Dave, for example, just gave a speech last week on China that I think President Trump would probably listen to and say, dang, I need that guy in the Senate. And yet one of the things that Dave McCormick was knocked, uh, you know, a knock on him from the, I'm, I'm assuming that Tom Casey, the incumbent Democrat, is going to go after Dave McCormick for having done business with China before. I think that Bob Casey will try and do that. And I don't think it'll necessarily be effective because I think that... 
Republicans over the years have found, you know, China has gotten increasingly hostile and increasingly sort of difficult to work with on the business front. And I think Dave is reacting to China as it is now, the global threats we're seeing on the stage now. And I think that that's what's really important here. I also think, you know, Bob Casey doesn't have a lot of room to support him there because Bob Casey's been very soft and friendly on China for a long time himself. So I think he mm. won't have a lot of room to attack him there. But I think okay. that what Dave has done that's effective is lay out very clear principles of how we need to treat China as an adversarial sort mm -hmm. of entity that we have to work with on some things, but wherever we can, we need to keep at arm's length. What about uh, Dave McCormick on anti-Semitism versus Bob Casey? I think that's been an issue that's been very interesting to watch because Dave McCormick weeks ago was calling on the president of UPenn to resign because, you know, there was anti-Semitic acts happening on campus and leadership of the administration were doing nothing about it. Whereas Bob Casey's kind of tiptoed around this a little bit. And for Casey, this is a dicey issue because he gave President Obama the deciding vote on the Iran nuclear deal. And Iran, obviously, is one of the state sponsors of terrorism, but specifically Hamas and others who have been attacking Israel. And so for Bob Casey, he's in a tough spot on Israel, anti-Semitism and things like that. And so I think Dave has done a very good job of being clear voiced on this issue and uh -huh. making sure that he was pointing out good and evil in this case, where Bob Casey's had a lot more trouble. Quick answer on this. Is there any state that you're looking at that might be a flip on either way from Republican to Democrat or Democrat to Republican on the Senate map that you just have on your list as a possibility? Sort of like a reach? Yes. I think those are our three big reaches. I think Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and Montana. I also think a lot of people see Ohio as a clear one to flip that we should have gotten in 2018, but we weren't able to lock down, that we have a much better chance of this time. All right. Let me see here. We have to take a quick break. We'll be right back. All right, Whitlock, for my last segment, I always like to ask people, what am I missing or possibly missing? I know you keep me on my toes. You keep me informed. You keep me on the right track. But you're an expert. So what do you pay attention to that I might be missing out there and that people listening would want to know? Well, there are a few issues that are animating to Republican voters that have not gotten enough attention in this primary, but they did in the last debate. And I think this is your first episode since the Tuscaloosa debate. And so I think, you know, we can recap a couple of those, one being ESG. Now, ESG, What's for those who are... ESG we is keep this real high level. Yes, we absolutely. Three thousand foot. Let's ESG. break this down. So <laughs> ESG is essentially a form of forcing corporations to adopt sort of. Uh, you know, environmental social governance policies to essentially force corporations to be more woke, more politically active, whether it's on climate change or social issues. And that is something that Democrats have used to make corporate America be more liberal, more woke. Is it um, fair to say that ESG is to corporations what DEI is to universities? Absolutely. Okay. Very similar. It's mandating sort of political activity and forcing companies to invest in things like green energy or forcing companies to invest in things like social issues that they might not necessarily agree with. And most importantly, might not necessarily be helpful to their, you know, investors. It, that might violate their fiduciary responsibilities. And I think that's a really important issue that a lot of Republicans see as an existential threat 
to our country. And you've seen it on the state level. You've seen a number of lawmakers introduce bills on it. It should be an animating force on the presidential stage. And Ron DeSantis talked about it in the last debate in a way that I think was really effective to the point that BlackRock, one of the preeminent supporters of ESG, actually came out and responded to. Mm -hmm. So I think that's an issue that I would love to see more Republicans talk about. It is a little bit wonky and a little bit technical, but when you think about how far this reaches, ESG itself is playing a role in driving up gas prices, energy prices, grocery bills for people. And it's, you know, how the government is forcing private companies to do things. Mm -hmm. We'd need more of a spotlight on that. Another one is parental rights. This is something that I think, you know, really propelled people like Governor Youngkin to the governorship. We've seen a little bit of this and we did see finally a really good discussion in Tuscaloosa. But to this point, I would have liked to see a lot more in this Mm -hmm. presidential primary. They're probably going to see a lot in the next 35 days on the way to Iowa, right? Absolutely. I think the parental because, rights like, groups... the governor of Iowa, she made sure that universal school choice was passed. <clears throat> and that made a huge difference. And a lot of other states are grappling with that issue now. And the other thing is <clears throat> that I guess we're trying to all imagine what would a Biden administration look like in a second term? It's unclear because they don't campaign. They don't tell you what they're going to do. Well, and that was there was an article just over the weekend that talked about how a lot of Democrats are raising alarm bells, not just because his polling is so bad, but because he doesn't have any kind of real campaign structure. Right. They don't have field operations. They don't have anything in place. That was stunning to me. Like they have more money than the Republicans do. Yeah. They do not have the basics that you would need in some of these states in order to win. And even if they think that Biden is going to win, I'm sure the Democrats, maybe they Maybe privately they don't, but publicly they're saying they believe strongly that Biden will pull it out in the end. you got to then have the infrastructure in the states in order to do that. What that tells me is their strategy right now is to hoard all the money that they can and then just run millions and millions of dollars of ads about abortion trying to Mm -hmm. attack Republicans, hoping that will go far enough to cancel out everyone's concerns about Joe Biden and Democrats not having any kind of plans or Mm. campaign. And so I think, what will a Biden administration look like? We have no idea. He's got no plans. He's got no ideas. And there's not even a campaign to tell us, because if there was a campaign, what are they going to be running on? As we've discussed, everything that they would tout as an accomplishment is actually a major vulnerability to now a majority of Americans. So it's hard to see what they would do if they built that infrastructure in place, but they do have yeah. a lot of money. I feel like we should bookmark this date and that a year from now we should meet on the second Monday of December and just see how we did. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I would love that. Okay. I, it's a date. That. I honestly think we're going to be right about a lot of things. I love that. I want, you know, I love to be right. Okay. Yes. We have trivia before we let you go. You can choose between three possible topics. We have candidate LinkedIn, campaign slogans, or presidential potpourri. Ooh. Let's do LinkedIn. Okay. I don't know what it is, so we'll see. It's about previous work history. So before running for president, this candidate served as the president of the Harvard Political Union while an undergrad. Was it RFK Jr., Vivek Ramaswamy, or Barack Obama? Geez, that's tough, because honestly, I could see any of them doing it. I know, this is very difficult. I'm going to guess. Let me just tell you something. It was the Harvard Political Union is the oldest collegiate debate society in the nation, if that gives you any clue. Oldest collegiate debate society in the nation. So our choices are RFK Jr., Vivek or Barack. I'm thinking it's either Vivek or Barack, but I, I, I could be wrong. 
I'm going to guess B, though. Vivek. Yeah, that's my you guess. You win. Oh, good. I think he you're just also, seems like that guy. I think you're one of the first people to actually get one of these right. <laughs> yes. Do I win something Which cool? is great. Well, you have a toddler at home, and he's giving yeah. you a cold. Um, yes. But thank you for coming in. We appreciate it. You're a great guest on Perino on Politics. Hope to have you back. It was a real pleasure. Thank you, Dana. Thank you. Bye. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Put the power of over 100 meteorologists and the worldwide resources of Fox in your hands with the Fox Weather Podcast. Precise, personal, powerful. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.